Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Before we talk with TechCrunch writers, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. Microsoft laid off a group of employees totaling less than 1% of its total workforce, but that could still be quite a few individuals given that the tech giant has 180,000 employees worldwide. The company said that these job cuts are about restructuring and realignment, rather than a response to specific economic conditions. All eyes are on big tech amid the current economic downturn, but Microsoft went out of its way to note that it's still hiring and aiming to grow overall headcount, however. Elon's love-hate relationship with Twitter turned litigious this week. Twitter sued Elon for failing to honor the agreed-upon terms of the proposed $44 billion deal after Elon sent a letter saying he officially wants out. In the suit, Twitter accuses Elon of acting in bad faith, citing Elon's own tweets, including the famed poop emoji reply to Twitter CEO, as evidence. This could go down as one of the messiest takeover attempts in history. Check out coverage of the ongoing drama on TC by Amanda Silberling and Taylor Hatmaker. Uber is being sued by 550 women over sexual assault by drivers. The class action suit could grow by another 150 participants at least as the litigators look for more cases that fit the definition of the class. The suit alleges that Uber promotes itself as a safe option while failing to properly background check drivers or offer adequate safety features for passengers. Uber reported 998 sexual assault incidents in 2020 in its own U.S. safety report released last month. You can read more about that on the site from Rebecca Bellin. Were you less productive this week? That's probably because the lo-fi girl wasn't working on a screen near you. The popular chill BG music channel was offline thanks to a DMCA takedown request, which turned out to be bogus. That marked the first time the channel was offline in over two years of live streaming. Because the DMCA and the labels that wield it are so powerful, YouTube acts quickly in response to takedown requests, even when they turn out to be false. Check out more about that on TC from Amanda Silberling. This week, we talked to Harry Weber about Tesla and their tenuous relationship with solar panels and Kyle Wiggers about Butler's mass layoffs. First up, we're talking to TC climate reporter Harry Weber about Tesla's trouble with solar. Hi, Harry. How's it going? Hey, doing good. How about you? Good. All right. So we've got a lot of Tesla news to cover. And I mean, there's a lot of Elon news in general this week, but this is maybe some of the stuff that is not the things that people are thinking of necessarily, but very interesting nonetheless. So can you tell us a bit about these Tesla solar developments, I guess we could call it. There's one that's maybe a bit of a boondoggle and then another that they intended as a real product, but seems to also be a bit of a boondoggle. So can you break that down for us? (laughs) Yeah, of course. So a little over a week ago, Tesla showed off a new gadget. It's a solar trailer with extendable panels, Starlink internet, and a lick of matte black paint. Ooh, they love that. (laughs) Yes. It's the aesthetic. Were it a full-fledged product, it would strike me as incredibly cobbled together, (laughs) like aside from the very smooth-looking paint job. But to be fair, it was described by a Tesla employee as a show of concept at a tech conference for German high schoolers. That's according to a Tesla fan who tweeted out pics of the new device. Okay, so it's not intended for powering your car, right? Like that would be a very impractical use of this type of vehicle. Is that correct? I think it sort of depends if Mm. for some reason there's some special way that Tesla's found a way to make it boost EV range. That would be kind of neat, clunky, but neat. It might also just be like 
hey, we were making some stuff. We're recruiting <laughs> like future college students, right, college right. aid students. And then also I was just going to say like Tesla has a habit of smushing its products together with other products, like working with the extended Elon universe. Yeah. So it's possible that it was just like designed to promote Starlink for SpaceX. That's true. You know, it's funny because it's not very impressive. And yet, according to the person who tweeted it out, Next to the Tesla stand is the VW stand, they said. And there are apparently more VW employees at the Tesla stand <laughs> than Tesla employees. So I think it's really a great example of like the strange magnetism that Tesla still has. No matter what Elon tweets, it seems that there's this pool that we we cannot resist. Yeah, I think, I mean, when you bring up the context, I guess it's essentially like a career fair or like a pre career fair, right? Because it's high school students, but presumably they're on the path to maybe eventually becoming engineers. And then these companies want them to keep them in mind. Is that kind of the gist of the situation where it was actually presented? Yes. Yes. As far as we can tell, that's what it was. It was in uh, Hanover, Germany. And, you know, in this context, it's cute. Right. It's less cute in the context of the other thing we were going to be talking about, which is (laughs) Tesla's, you know, wild ambition and inability to perhaps meet a lot of those ambitions. Yeah. But it's funny because it's like when I look at this and I think about that context, I kind of think the like show team that was putting together this booth was like, oh, can we get a cyber truck? And then <laughs> and the Tesla was like, absolutely not. <laughs> There's one. Elon just drives it around and smashes its windows on occasion. And it's not for use in high school. <laughs> career yeah, yeah. They're like, uh, I don't know, just. Yeah, just take this trailer thing. I don't know. Someone, we're not sure who made it, but we're not using it. Well, they just looked around in the warehouse and they're like, I've got a Starlink. I've got a bunch of batteries. I think I've got some metal and some matte paint. Like, uh, this is what I put together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. So, you know, these students are getting starry eyed about, well, maybe I'll go work this. But one of the things that it would be nice if they eventually got to work on and really ship was. The Tesla's solar roof, which was, oh, it was debuted many years ago now. I remember I was actually at the debut of it. It was in Universal Studios, a little bit of movie magic out in L.A. And it was like, it was on the set, which was the a street used for Desperate Housewives filming, as well as a number of other television shows. Right. Wisteria Lane, as yes. it's called. Yes. Were, Were you, you there? At, yeah. No, I wasn't, but I... <laughs> I was watching the stream from New York at the time, but I have to ask, were you ever a Desperate Housewives fan? I was not a Desperate Housewives fan. <laughs> yeah, I at one point binged it off of a DVD box set many a year ago, and I just remember this sort of dizzy feeling of sort of reluctantly putting on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, for me, that's what Tesla's solar shingles evoke. Yeah, yeah. Well, Desperate Housewives. And I, I think that it's now become enmeshed with the idea of a fictional street, right? Like a street used strictly for Hollywood production because after many, many promises, and I've covered many of the developments over the years, and hopefully, I don't know how much you Googled uh, TechCrunch and solar roofs while you're writing this story, Harry, but hopefully you didn't see all those tragedies of past journalism where it's <laughs> kind of like saying, well, now Elon says, you know, this is happening, you know, next year or whatever. And now it's been, you know, I think that was probably like four years ago or something like that, but five years ago, maybe. And things just keep getting delayed and it never has achieved scale. And it seems like even now that's kind of the state that they're in. Can you give us a bit more detail on what you learned? Sure. Like the street, not really a presentation of, or rather a representation of reality. Mm. Elon Musk is known for just pie in the sky, 
like super crazy goals. And Elon set out a few different like similar sounding goals. But the one I'm focused on is the number of solar roofs they install a week. And the goal was a thousand per week, complete solar roofs. And if I'm like the most generous I can be, reportedly, there may be 4% of the way to that goal. Wow. Let's say, you know, five years on or half a decade on or something like that. So this is from Electrek, which is a EV blog that does great reporting. And they say that Tesla installed 2.5 megawatts of solar roofs in the second quarter of this year. So if we do some back of the napkin math, that's like 20 medium sized homes per week. Mm. We assume about 10 kilowatt installations per those homes, 20 a week. A lot of solar roofs are going on large, fancy homes, Mm -hmm. some on smaller ones. If we're more generous, that would be like 38 a week if we assume five kilowatt installations, which really isn't realistic, but we're just trying to give Tesla as as much of a, a boost here as possible for being generous. So they're just nowhere near where Elon set out to take this product. Yeah. And look, it looks so cool. I mean, just to talk oh, about yeah. it again. It looks fantastic. At least like the action figures that they put on the houses, you know, like whatever, however we'd like to describe them there, because they weren't functioning demos at the no, time. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It looks super cool. There was like a sleek glass terracotta one. That was the one that caught my eye the most. And really, it's designed because solar panels, some people, I think increasingly fewer and fewer people, but some people think of solar panels as this eyesore. Yeah. You know, this thing visually breaking up the view of the, you know, whatever nice tiles on the roof. I think increasingly that's like, I just would like to think that nobody cares anymore. Right. Like the more we talk about climate change, the less aesthetics matter. It seems of a minor concern in sort of the hierarchy of issues you should be worried about, right? It's like, well, what about the aesthetics of my roof? And do they, it's not even like, does it look good? It's like, does it look does it fit the traditional mold of what I feel like a roof should look like, right? Which it, maybe does it please the neighborhood association? Right. Which maybe that's an important thing, but ultimately the point was to make them invisible. Yeah. So Tesla has just not in any way shape or form succeeded based on the latest report. Now, we'll hear more very soon. Tesla's got a Q2 report coming out on July 20th. So, maybe we'll hear an update after the reports, but Tesla doesn't like to talk about this very much. Like mm-hmm. On the other hand, their more conventional solar energy business is apparently doing pretty well. This is from the same report. Tesla apparently saw its best quarter since 2017 just for its U.S. residential division. Hmm. Basically, what happened was Tesla snapped up Solar City, which was like, I think, was it, what was it run by? The cousin of Elon Musk. Yes, it was definitely in the family. <laughs> yeah, so it was part of the extended universe. And Tesla snapped it up. And soon after, like, just the numbers were plummeting for the installation for a number of reasons. Everything from their business practices to the process of getting rid of redundancies or whatever. However it happened, the merger meant that SolarCity's market share just like crashed. Mm-hmm. But apparently it's on the uh, the up and up, which I suppose is great news for the solar industry, but not for the solar roof world. Right. It, these things look like conventional solar panels. So after all that talk, all we're really getting is just like those regular solar panels we'd expect to see. Yeah. yeah. You know, in a way it's kind of like, 
All right. Well, that's fine. Like as long as they're moving towards the goal in some way and then maybe this other thing didn't work out. And it was a very it was pretty ambitious from an engineering perspective. And I remember a lot of the conversation was around how much more efficiency Musk expected to be able to get out of the panels over time, like their theoretical maximums, which, again, is nothing, right? It's a classic Musk move is to talk about essentially vaporware long, long before you've shipped anything. So to me, it's like maybe this is an outcome whereby, you know, Musk wanted to do something for a particular reason and got it into his brain that this was the way to go. And it was a massive distraction for the company for a long time. And maybe they're just kind of moving on alongside that and not really worrying so much about that and hoping he doesn't notice because he's got his his brain full (laughs) of other things going on. (laughs) He's busy tweeting, like, look, we can only do 20 a week. All right, so just, like, don't tell the boss. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Keep doing the regular thing that actually works. Yeah, he's. I think he's having a fight with Trump. So like, we're good. We're good. We can miss our targets again this week. Yeah. He's fighting with Trump on Twitter. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're also supposed to be cheaper. Yeah. And one of the issues was that according to number of reports, they were just like jacking up the prices on some installations. And there were delays. Some people were canceling because it was too expensive, I was saying. But also there was at least one customer who just was like sitting there without a roof because of supply issues. And so, yeah. Theoretically really neat, looks nice when it's like a fake model on a fake house. Yeah. <laughs> in a fake street. <laughs> but when you're also restricted to taking photos only from an iPhone, too. That was the other weird thing about that event is that they pro- they prohibited journalists present from using real cameras, but you were totally fine to take photos using your iPhone. And I remember the iPhone with whatever optical zoom had just come out. So we were all sitting there trying to get the best quality pictures we could of what was essentially a set piece. Because <laughs> yeah, we thought I, it was going to be useful. Like it was a totally absurd, totally absurd event, but really emblematic of sort of what we've come to expect of, of Tesla and their marketing apparatus, let's say. Absolutely. I couldn't have put that better. I mean, the showmanship is sort of what makes it grating, mm. is that it was so over the top and yet the results today are so underwhelming mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's an, it's the disparity that makes it something that I want to just continue to talk about because yeah. it's just it's just like you know two different planets really is what we're we're like living on two different planets. There's the showmanship side and then there's like reality. But yeah, you know all that said, the solar division itself apparently has you know good news for July twentieth. So you know we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we'll be waiting, and I'm sure you'll bring all that news to TechCrunch's readers, so we'll stay tuned for that. Thanks so much, Harry. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Next, we talk to a new TC writer, Kyle Wiggers, about a mass layoff and cautionary tale for startups in the food and hospitality business. Hey, Kyle. Hey. How's it going? Yeah, going well. Busy as always, but, you know... Lots of exciting stories to pursue. So Yeah, for sure. And I'm like stunned that the Butler story blew up as much as it has. I didn't expect it would uh, go viral, certainly. But yeah, I, I guess it resonated and it makes sense. Like it was a promising startup that by all appearances shouldn't have gone under, but did. And they, you know, it's not every day you hear about a startup laying off a thousand people and not really announcing it. So <laughs> for sure. So just for our listeners, in case they are... Not as familiar, haven't yet read it, though, like you said, a lot of people are. So it's quite possible they did. The one that we're talking about is this Butler Hospitality startup. Essentially just 
kind of disappeared overnight, but it's a little more complicated than that. It kind of folded into another sort of company and there's quite a bit of twists and turns, which makes it a very interesting story to follow. So do you want to give some more details, Kyle, about kind of what exactly happened here for Butler? Sure, Daryl. Um, and thanks for having me on to talk about the story. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there are a lot of twists and turns. Could easily be turned into a, a miniseries at some point. Yes. <laughs> are you optioning it yet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, Butler, it was founded by this gentleman, Tim John Belgic, and he has a history in the restaurant industry. His father was also in the restaurant industry and was kind of instrumental in Butler's founding, as far as I'm aware. But yeah, he spearheaded this thing. The business model was really interesting. Essentially, it was a ghost kitchen setup. So Butler would come into underused kitchens at hotels and resort properties. And they would use those kitchens to prepare food for on-site guests and also nearby properties. Uh, They would hire delivery people to deliver said food and other useful things as well. Like if you forgot your phone charger, Butler could, at least according to their website, you know, get that to you, anything you you might need that you left at home. Nobody else was doing this as far as I'm aware. And Butler raised a lot of capital to scale this. But the problem is they focused on scaling at the expense of all else, it seems. Mm. They were really honing in on the leasing part of the business. So they were going out and, you know, inking deals with pretty prominent hotel chains, including Marriott, or at least franchises under well-known hospitality brands. But the pandemic hit. That was a big issue for them. You know, it makes sense. Like travel just nosedived. People weren't staying at properties where Butler was operating. And they didn't, you know, it seems like they didn't really recover from that. They struggled to raise runway earlier this year. They were telling employees that they expected to, but that never came through. And then after, you know, layoffs early this year, just a few dozen people, not a ton, they followed up with mass layoffs. The mass layoffs included both corporate folks at Butler, as well as a lot of contractors working at these ghost kitchens and delivery drivers, et cetera. And that was about a thousand people in all. And there is a class action lawsuit. Some employees allege that Butler didn't give sufficient notice ahead of the mass layoffs. There's uh, federal and state laws that require companies to do that. And allegedly, Butler didn't follow those laws. The class action also suggests that Butler promised certain benefits to employees that ultimately weren't delivered, like some employees were promised, I mean, at least they tell me, a few months of health benefits post-layoff and only got a few weeks. Uh. One employee said you know, they were promised a bonus that they didn't get. So yeah, like it was not the best exit from the scene, no. you could say. Pretty messy, in fact. And, and again, I think that's why the story is like making its way around the web. It's just crazy that this happened and nobody really knew about it until employees started reaching out to me. And thankfully, I was able to put pen to paper. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it's something that we see shutdowns happen quite a bit in the startup community, obviously. But the size of the company, like a thousand employees is is unusual for something like this. And that's also, I guess, an outcropping of it being, a, you know, a, a difficult business to run infrastructure wise. Like it's not uh, bits and bytes exclusively, right? It's real goods moving around real places. But yeah, the fact that it happened that quickly combined with that many people impacted, combined with like external signs were that the company seemed to be healthy and operational, basically right up until it no longer existed, right? Yeah, yeah. The wild thing is that you can go to Butler's site today, as of this recording at least, um, we're recording on the 12th (laughs) of this month, and there's no indication that they've gone under. In fact, a lot of profiles on LinkedIn 
like high level Butler execs haven't changed. Like from the outside looking in, it seems like Butler is still, you know, just doing fine, right? Like coasting on that money they raised. In fact, like I mentioned in the story, a few days after Butler shut down was dissolved, like they were still emailing some clients saying, like, we're operational, at least to the extent that we're going to like transition the lease that we own within your hotel to like you or somebody else who might want to step up and, and take over like the restaurant concept, whatever it might have been. Right. So, you know, like I talked to the CEO, Tim, and he said, you know, they have someone kind of off ramping their partners, taking care of remaining contractual obligations. Who knows how long that'll take? I'm sure it'll take some time because they were in, I think, a roughly a dozen cities, if I remember correctly, and they mm-hmm. were looking to expand further before this went south. So I spoke to a few vendors who were impacted and they were obviously not happy. Right. Services just kind of shut off without warning for guests staying at certain hotels uh, that Butler was servicing. So yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. I've personally feel for all the vendors because what do you tell your hotel guest who's suddenly not able to get room service? Obviously these things happen and like who could predict a pandemic, but still it's like there wasn't, it seems from outward appearances, a fallback plan in case things didn't work out as planned in case like the next funding round wasn't secure. Like the senior management didn't really anticipate this, (laughs) didn't didn't have worst case scenario in mind and do maybe what they should have to ensure that there wouldn't be like collateral damage here. Yeah. And this is something that comes up kind of time and time again, when you're looking at what we call in the industry, a Deadpool story, right? Like there's a point at which companies typically can make a decision to establish some kind of like graceful or at least organized wind down plan or kind of opt to go for it. This is a simplification, but essentially opt to try to make it to the next injection of funding and keep the lights on and make sure everything appears to the outside like it's operating as intended. And then hopefully that bridge funding comes through or that next round comes through and then you get away with it and nobody's the wiser, right? But the first option is seen generally as friendlier to employees and vendors and everything else. Do you get the sense that there was that kind of last ditch effort here to write the train and get things back on track? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say for sure. Haven't seen all the relevant paperwork, I think, but from what I was told by sources, employees who were close to some of the senior management, they were trying. Mm. And they had some high-level investors who I'm sure were in touch and doing due diligence about an next round, like a follow-up to the previous. One is the VC arm of And Pizza, that like big chain that's nationwide, you know, pretty prominent in the restaurant space. But yeah, I mean, I think partially investors were wary of the scale at which Butler was pursuing this. Mm-hmm. I think it was just a case of expansion too quickly, maybe the wrong way to go about it when the economy is still recovering. And in fact, now there are new headwinds to worry about, like the war in Ukraine is still a factor right. in investors' minds and potential coming recession as soon as this year or next year. Plenty of investors are pulling back for a range of reasons, You know, not even germane to business models, just they're concerned about investing, period, right? Yeah, yeah. Butler got caught in the middle of all this. Maybe some wrong management decisions were made, but also like it's a really tough environment. Sure. Just this week, we heard about Microsoft laying off some people. Like Big tech is being impacted by all of the, uh, I mean, the macroeconomic factors, I guess you could call it, yeah. that we're observing. It's hard to blame Butler in that aspect. I'm sure 
you know, other delivery company CEOs could tell us it's just tough yeah. to convince yeah. anyone to, to fund a super capital intensive business right now. So, you know, that should be noted. Yeah, for sure. It is interesting too, and I think exceptional in a case like this, that you actually got to hear directly from John Ballack himself, right? Like, especially if there's pending litigation involved, that doesn't happen post an event like this occurring. So can you tell me a bit about that and kind of how you found him in, in communication? I'll say off the bat, it wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> and it might have helped that um, there was a piece about this in Restaurant Dive. They did mm-hmm. great reporting, investigative, thorough work. I linked to it in my story. And that might have pressured him to speak with me. But I reached out to all the senior management uh, using the contact information I, I had on hand. Not much. <laughs> the contact form on Butler's site is down, despite the site being up. But... Eventually got in touch with him through LinkedIn. He agreed to an email interview. Part of me thinks that was because he wanted it looked over by somebody else, the answers right. to, <laughs> to that he sent me to my questions. But at least he was willing to go on the record and give his side of the story. For the most part, it seemed reasonable. Um, there's nothing he told me that wasn't at least somewhat believable. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's the former CEO or current, depending on how you look at it. And he wants to spin this stuff in a favorable light. But I guess I have some sympathy just because this was his child, his baby. He wanted to turn this into something much bigger. Yeah. At least judging by the press releases that were coming out about Butler a couple months ago, I'm sure like he's frustrated as well. And apparently, uh, you know, is interested in putting the record straight. So it's fortunate for us. And I'm glad we could put it in the context of these other stories employees were telling us so that we have a balanced telling here. Yeah, for sure. I also am curious, do you have any thoughts about the business model overall and the impact to this kind of space? Because I think you mentioned it up top, but I do find like the fundamentals of the business seem very smart. Like it does seem like an intelligent sort of business to devise and launch in terms of the market. But do you think that this kind of thing will you know, be picked up by somebody else in future? Or do you think this will have a chilling effect on this kind of approach to in hotel amenities and, and restaurant service? Right. So I think Butler did some things wrong, you know, scaling too quickly, of course, but also they owned these different restaurant concepts. They were operating. And these were restaurants where you could go and sit down and order a meal, like mm. full-blown restaurants that were used to, in any sense of the word, like what you expect. And from what I understand, those were like expensive and probably not the wisest in retrospect. Maybe they should have stuck with a ghost kitchen idea. Right. Of course, the ghost kitchen industry is super competitive and you know labor intensive too. So even had they gone just that route and not ventured into the restaurant concept space, probably would have been challenging. But um, to answer your question, I think somebody could probably take this and run with it. Maybe try to make do with fewer contractors or be more clever about which brands you're partnering with in which cities. Mm-hmm. You know, New York makes sense, obviously, like San Francisco, the big names on the East and West Coast. But, you know, Butler was in Miami too. Like, did that make sense? Looking back, maybe, maybe not. Right. And fees too have to be worked out. Like Butler initially wasn't like charging fees for delivery from what I understand, but then they started to later in the game, perhaps Consumers just have to get used to the idea of paying for these sorts of deliveries and then like a startup akin to Butler or modeled after it can take off. Right now, I don't know. Um, yeah. The upcharges to make this profitable might be too much for the average person to swallow, might be too much for the average hotel guest to, to get around, to get their head around. Although like room service is expensive to begin with. So yep, <laughs> if you're competing with room service, like... Maybe it's even keel, but we'll have to see. I'm bullish. I think somebody will succeed eventually, but it might take some more trial and error. Yeah. 
and frankly, time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, time for this wound to heal, at least in investors' minds. But also, I Mm -hmm. think, you know, this probably isn't the last story of this type that we see during this economic cycle and where we're at. So we'll keep an eye out for more. And I'm sure you will as well, Kyle. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks again for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code TCPodcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. Also, you can still register for free to attend our virtual TC Sessions Robotics event happening July 21st at TechCrunch.com slash events. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, and Chain Reaction. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.